at this time, will you please stand with us as we read today's passage? We'll be reading from uh, the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord God has made known to us. And they went in haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we, um, we just want to be your sheep this morning, and we ask that you would shepherd us into your presence, um, into a posture of listening, um, and ultimately into your joy. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat, everyone. YOLO! <laughs> Judging by your reaction, uh, this colloquial term uh, has now, like the dinosaurs, become extinct. Uh, raise your hand if it's still part of your vocabulary. Good, that's a good thing. Um, the, t- the term was popularized towards the end of 2011 by the hip-hop artist Drake. Uh, 2011 was also the year that Amanda and I started dating. By 2015, the term was still in use, albeit on the decline. Um, by 2015, uh, after about three and a half years of dating, Amanda and I, almost on a whim, uh, decided to do something dangerous and risky uh, in our relationship because... Wow, YOLO. We decided to take a trip together, uh, but it wasn't like a weekend getaway to Portland or any shorter domestic trip. We decided we would travel halfway around the world to Australia. Uh, Amanda actually has family down there, and long story short, after deciding to make a trip out to visit them, uh, she casually floated the question by me one day, simply asking, would you want to come? And without too much thought, I replied, sure because YOLO. Uh, Those of you who've been in relationships know that one of the tests of that relationship 
and the potential of a future together is a trip. I see all the couples looking at each other. Uh, now, we had traveled together, but only as far as California. Uh, so hopping on an 18-hour flight halfway around the world to another continent for two weeks was quite a step up. Two 18-hour flights plus long driving days, two weeks in a new country surrounded by family I had never met. A lot could go wrong. But it also held the possibility of being a great opportunity to learn to grow. Um, I didn't realize it until I was already locked in and it was too late to back out that this could make or break our relationship. Uh, now, those of you who know us would probably know that between the two of us, Amanda, God bless her, is the organized planner in the relationship. And believe it or not, it actually took me a while to realize that as we were dating. Um, but planning being her strong suit, when it came time to finally embark on our trip, she sent me, I kid you not, a printed document of our itinerary, complete with dates, timetables, down to the minute, like the person I was dating was actually a travel agent. Not only was there an itinerary, but it was packed. You know, the next year, we actually took a trip to London uh, to visit my sister. And again, a printed minute-by-minute, play-by-play itinerary for our time in London and then Paris. And I, being the idiot boyfriend, foolishly asked, this is a lot of stuff. Are you, are you going to be upset if we don't hit everything on the itinerary? And she replied with no words, uh, just the worst death glare of all time. Uh, no further questions from me. And so we're on this trip to Australia. We spend time with family in Sydney. We go snorkeling the Great Barrier Reef, drive through the South Island of New Zealand, which is actually my favorite place in the whole world. Uh, and we actually have the most amazing time together. Before traveling with Amanda, I thought trips were really just for going with the flow, leisurely wandering, taking it easy. Uh, and there's a time and place for that. And we have had trips like that since. Uh, but when I look back on our time in Australia, I realized that it was Amanda's planning that made space for our amazing experiences. It made space for fun, it made space for, for taking in beauty at a relaxed pace, uh, for valuable learning and growing as a couple. Paradoxically, the organized planning and structure made space for spontaneity, uh, for excitement and wonder. And to this day, even after traveling to other amazing destinations, we still consider this trip our best trip ever. Uh, it was actually this trip that made space for me to come to the realization that I could spend the rest of my time with the woman that I was with, or the rest of my life with her. So we're currently in the season of Advent, a time when we remember Jesus' first coming, entering into the world as a human baby born in a dark, cold, dirty barn, uh, entering into a world of darkness, messiness, uh, political turmoil, and social unrest, not too unlike the time we're living in now. Advent is also a season of waiting, anticipating, and longing. Like We long for Jesus to return a second time, as he promised. We long for it desperately because we long for the end of things like evil and suffering and death. We long for Jesus to make all things right again. And so we wait in faith. But Advent is also a time in which we reflect on Jesus' presence in our lives now. Like how is he coming into my life now? Or how does he want to enter into my life now? 
And am I making myself available to him? Am I opening myself up to him? Am I preparing him room, as the song says? Am I making space? We started the season by meditating on hope, then peace last week. Uh, so today we talk about joy. And so I want to lay out three questions. First, do we want joy? Second, do we have space for joy? And then three, what can we learn from the shepherds and Mary about experiencing joy? First up, do we want joy? At face value, seems like a silly question, right? Like, well, yeah, I want joy. And at the same time, on the surface, in our day and age, we have what appears to be a wealth of tools, tips, and tricks for achieving joy. While I, along with most of your parents, grew up witnessing the advent of the internet, uh, most of this generation are what sociologists call digital natives, meaning you grew up with the internet, and along with that, smartphones and social media being the norm. Like you never knew life without these things. If someone from, I don't know, like the 1700s traveled in time to 2023, they'd probably be like, wow, electricity? Vehicles that aren't powered by horses? Uh, moving pictures? Life must be good. You all must be the happiest people ever. And yet, we're not. We're far from it, actually. And so the lesson from history seems to be that more things, more conveniences, more power, more gadgets, more options does not equate to more happiness. As it turns out, a certain philosopher and poet from the 1990s was right. More money, more problems. Now, I'll be among the first to say that I don't know if I'd want to go live in the 1700s. Like, I don't know if, I don't know if I'd want to do life without running water, electricity, heat, a sewage system. But what if all of our modern tools and toys actually get in the way of our joy? We have so many services, entertainment options, and gateways to pleasure and quote-unquote fun, that if you think about it, we're being trained not to look any further than the device in our hand, or what's currently streaming for our happiness. Like I remember one time asking one of my piano students uh, what they were most excited for with the coming break. And you know what they said? I'm excited for less restrictions and more screen time. And I thought to myself, kid, bruh, are you serious? Like your, deepest your deepest desire is more Robux? Your deepest desire is to have uninhibited access to the very thing that's controlling your mind, mining your personal information, lowering your attention span, and wreaking havoc on an entire generation and potentially the next generation. I thought that. I didn't say it. And we might be tempted to think, oh, kids, uh, but we're not that different, really. Like many of you, I'm, I meet with a community group every week, uh, and with the holiday season upon us, we also talk about what we're excited for for the vacation. Uh, surprisingly, or not surprisingly, and this is just an observation, but the responses will not be very different. I'm excited for more time to game. Or, I've got the entire season of fill-in-the-blank on cue, ready to binge. And so while the question of do we want joy might seem like a no-brainer, if you think about it, we're actually not trained to want joy. We're trained to want pleasure and to want it now. 
You know, marketing companies don't want us to want joy because our joy is not profitable for them. If we had joy, we wouldn't buy most of the things they're trying to sell us. And since efficiency and convenience is so highly valued today, pleasure wins simply because pleasure is easier. It's the path of least resistance. Joy, on the other hand, feels like a unicorn, like a legend of old. It feels unattainable to us and even impossible. And if not impossible, joy feels like a lot of work, right? And so we settle. But while we are trained to settle for pleasure at the expense of joy, the unavoidable reality is that our souls actually deeply thirst for a truer and more beautiful joy. And try as we might to stay afloat or distracted on pleasure alone, we can't escape the fact that we experience a serious joy deficit. And the truth is, as our brother Daniel reminded us last week, things like peace and joy, they actually take effort, right? Like, it's easy to swing through the McDonald's drive through for America's favorite fries. I love McDonald's fries. It's harder to shop for good ingredients, make a quality meal. It's harder to make a reservation months in advance for that really nice restaurant. But one of those meals while quickly satisfying a craving, does nothing for the soul and even trains it to forget it needs joy. The other meal enriches. And you might think that I'm like overthinking it or getting too poetic here, but the other meal cultivates and refines your taste. It trains you to look past cheap pleasures. The other meal engages you in the labor of cra carefully crafting the food that you're about to enjoy. And so it engages you in a, in a labor of love. The other meal is less a quick hit and more an experience for all of the senses to slowly savor. It feeds more than just your stomach. The other meal might even just touch on a desire of the soul. But again, this requires effort. It requires us to make room in our schedules, make room in our wallets, uh, our lives, it requires us to slow down, which, as it turns out, is really hard. All this leads to the next question. Do we have room for joy? So even if we want joy, do we have room for it? Because joy requires room. Unlike pleasure, which is a small and conveniently consumable in, in quick doses, joy is big. It's a big emotion that has greater effects and greater demands, therefore, on our lives. So you have to make space for it. And during our trip to Australia, Amanda, through her careful and methodical planning, made space for joy. And obviously, that's an example of a good time. Uh, but even when we were in the hospital, you know, praying for our daughter to live, I would not say that there was an absence of joy. There was pain, yes desperation, uncertainty, and fear, darkness. But there was also light that could not be overcome by darkness. In between praying for Phoebe's life, we would bring in the Bluetooth speaker and have dance parties. In between the sleepless nights where she'd be crying out of hunger because the doctor suspended her feeding for the next morning's procedure, we'd read books together as a family. In the midst of long weeks of inconclusive or discouraging test results, we would practice Sabbath together as a family in the ICU. 
Amanda lived at Children's Hospital during the months Phoebe was there, always by her bedside while I went back and forth. But the night before Sabbath, I'd spend the night at the hospital. We'd cram into the, the tiny, uncomfortable, fold-out couch, have terrible sleep, but still take joy because we were together. On Sabbath morning, we'd read a psalm or something, and then I'd actually make pour over a coffee in our hospital room with all the coffee equipment from our house. Because Sabbath is for single-origin craft coffee, not Starbucks. And then we'd spend the day together, you know, receiving whatever rest we could, finding delight through a Bluetooth dance party, out on a brisk stroll on the Burke Gilman, or an evening viewing of Home Alone. And we weren't the only ones battling out with darkness by practicing and making room for joy in spite of the circumstances. If you're ever there, as you walk through the halls of Seattle Children's Hospital, you'll see kids up and down the corridors hooked up to all sorts of machines and monitors but you'll also see them smiling, skipping, playing with toys and the features of the building. And so what you witness is bold, defiant joy. Joy that is practiced in spite of the circumstances. And so joy is something you make space for and cultivate. You know, it's a, it's a faith-driven act of defiance based on the promises of Advent. Jesus has come, he is here, and he is coming again. Which means we can hold space for joy, even in the darkest of times. Like a small fire in the middle of a cold night. During the season of Advent, we celebrate the light that cannot be overcome by darkness. The light that we all have access to. So friends, what if one of our key problems with joys is simply that we don't have room for it, or we don't have time for it. And I know that we have busy lives and busy seasons of life, but the truth is we make room for a lot of things in our lives. Like the average person spends four and a half hours on their phone, and that includes millennials and boomers as well as Gen Z. It's a number that's steadily increasing. You know, we'll make room for that extra episode or that extra drink. We'll stay up late regardless of whether or not we actually have work to do. But we find it really hard to practice things like Sabbath. You know, even though the fruits of Sabbath keeping when practiced over a period of time are deep rest and delight in the Lord, it feels too invasive, too life-altering, a little too countercultural for us in a personal way. We struggle to make time for prayer, largely because prayer doesn't exactly release dopamine, the pleasure chemical in our brain, the same way that scrolling on our, our phones does. And on top of that, our tools for pleasure, to an extent, are tried and true, right? Like, we know they'll deliver. We just need to keep upping the dose. Trusting that things like Sabbath, or fasting, or prayer, time spent being with Jesus, Trusting that that actually cultivates joy is risky. Which is why it grows our faith. And honestly, most of the time we fail simply because we abandon it too soon. Like we write it off as, that's ah, not for me. Way too soon. Joy takes practice and it requires us to make room. 
Joy along with peace, love, flourishing as people requires structure of some kind. Just as the art, the emotion, and the human connection conveyed by a Beethoven sonata is made possible largely by its structure. Just as the spontaneity in the musical communication and jazz music is made possible largely by its network of organized scales and chord progressions. Just as a spiritual life of enjoying Jesus and growing in love is made possible by an intentional life rhythm and routine, a rule of life. Structure begets spontaneity. Going with the flow most of the time actually thwarts spontaneity, inspiration, art, and joy. If you talk to any artist who's in it for the long haul, they'll tell you that a small fraction of their success comes from talent. The rest comes from sticking with the process through the ups and downs, mostly the downs, sticking with the discipline, putting in the work. So it comes from making space. So with that, that was a really long intro. So with that, we can finally get into Luke chapter 2. To ask this question, what can we learn from the shepherds and from Mary about making space to experience deep joy? Lay it out in four steps. Hear, pursue, share, and treasure. Let's pick it up back in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. The first question we should be asking as modern readers is, why shepherds? The greatest news of all time, apparently, news of a coming savior for all, comes not to kings, not to the social or the religious elite, but to shepherds. Like, if you grew up in church, you probably have, like, really cute associations with shepherds, like little kids dressed up in their bathrobes at the Christmas pageant. Uh, but actually, shepherds were, like, considered really low third-class citizens at that time. And not only that, they were, like, really rough around the edges, like, gruff and surly. The modern expression would be, like, probably cursed like sailors. Um, and they're even, they were even known to, like, cheat people. So they'd be the last people you'd expect to receive news from angelic beings, right? Which kind of makes it a classic God move, going to the unlikeliest of all people, to the social outcasts. But let's read on. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So joy starts with hearing. The shepherds hear of good news and great joy. And this is usually how we're first exposed to the possibility of joy. Dude, Brooks, you got to try this new restaurant. Dave's Hot Chicken. <laughs> the news, great news, the good news, is there's a great restaurant and I need to try it. The implicit message is I will enjoy it. It might bring me joy. It might even change my life. The joy starts with hearing. The pastor and theologian John Piper writes, Get alone with God and preach his word into your mind until your heart sings. And so joy starts with hearing. 
But then that hearing must be followed by an action of some kind. To experience this joy, I actually need to go out and try Dave's hot chicken. Hearing must be followed by pursuit. We must pursue what we hear about. Jump ahead to verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. There are two kinds of listening. There's listening that leads to action and practice. That's obedience. And then there's listening that I would call podcast listening. Like, we'll hear a podcast, maybe comment, say, oh, that was cool, or insightful, or even mind-blowing. But then we'll go on living our lives without actually incorporating that wisdom or truth or teaching or guidance into our lives. You know, many people listen to sermons and read the Bible, but then it stops there. And there's no obedience and, and no practice. And so the teachings and the ways of Jesus never go from the mind down into the heart to be lived out. So they never form us. This is podcast listening. And some people listen to a ton of sermons. Some people memorize swaths of scripture. They listen to a lot of Christian podcasts, but there is little joy that emerges. And with that little transformation, this is why discipleship is, is just not a reality for a lot of Christians, even though it's Jesus' invitation and command to all Christians. This is why life change is not as common as it should be if Jesus is our Lord. This is why freedom and joy in Christ is only found by some. It's why James, the brother of Jesus, writes, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. James is writing to Christians here, not unbelievers. Love and relationship require pursuit. This is modeled to us by God who pursues us. Peace requires pursuit. You need to set conditions for it because a lot of times life doesn't let up. Joy requires pursuit because in our day and age, the odds are stacked against it. So put yourself in Luke's scene for a second here. You know, we hear this passage every year around Christmas, and so it's probably really easy to disengage your imagination when you're reading it. But just consider for a second what it took for the shepherds to just pick up and go in haste to Bethlehem. First of all, after seeing a bunch of angels in the sky, they'd have to wonder if they weren't just going crazy and seeing things in the middle of a sleepless night. Second, they do then decide to go to Bethlehem. That's like a big step of faith to pursue. Third, if they're good shepherds, then we'd have to presume that they wouldn't just leave their sheep behind, right? So they'd have to lead their entire flocks with them. And so they go by foot, dragging all of these sheep with them to see Jesus. If you think about it, that's a big life interruption. That's a big life rearrangement. That's a big effort to go and see about this newborn baby. 
And I mean, I, I can kind of relate. I don't lead a whole flock of sheep. Uh, but full disclosure, sorry to our staff. I've been late every Sunday morning for our setup. I wasn't the most punctual person before, but I'm not super late either, so mind you. Uh, but it's just a little harder with a dog and a baby. Uh, and so the shepherds, they go to great lengths to see about this Jesus. They make some big life rearrangements in order to make space for this promised joy. Because the joy of the Lord is a massive interruption to our lives, and we need to make rearrangements to receive it and to enjoy it. Let's read on, verse 17. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Third part, share. Back to Dave's hot chicken. I have yet to try it. I know they just opened up in Cap Hill, but my source tells me to try it in Portland first, just in case. Um, and I know that when I do try it, probably in the company of that certain someone who recommended it to me, Andy, he'll look me right in the eye to gauge my reaction. And when I nod and go, mmm, he'll nod right back and say, right? And his joy will be made complete. Joy is made complete when we share it. When we share a, I know, right, moment. The joy of seeing that new movie is made complete when you talk about it with all your friends. When you share about the favorite parts. The happiest I've seen Amanda recently was when she finished making our family heirloom stockings. And they're beautiful. You know? But upon finishing, she shared the good news of great joy with close friends, her community group, and then the world through Instagram. The joy of finishing a novel or a marathon or a project of some kind is made complete when you share it with people who can receive your joy and celebrate with you. And so it is with Jesus. He is best received, best enjoyed, best beholden in community. We experience this through the joy of worshiping together like we did earlier. They're just talking about Jesus and what he's been up to in our lives together. It's exciting sharing and talking about Jesus to people who've never met him or people who've only known misrepresentations of him. Joy is made complete when we share it. We make space for joy to be magnified when we share it. But joy is also magnified when we just behold it in quiet, reflective solitude and wonder when we treasure it. Verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Can you imagine Mary in that moment? There's a scene around her. She's just given birth and now strangers from far away. She doesn't know who. They're dirty because they're shepherds, but it doesn't matter because they're in a barn anyway. Uh, strangers are coming from afar just to adore this child and the promised hope that he will bring. These were people who needed hope, just as we need hope. These were people who needed joy, just as we need joy. And Mary is just taking it all in and relishing the moment. 
just taking a, a mental and emotional snapshot of that moment, relishing the joy that this child is already bringing and relishing this unimaginable future of the child, savior of the world. And one of our greatest joys is just seeing the joy that Phoebe brings to everyone who meets and interacts with her. Like her middle name is Hope, but there are a lot of times when we wonder whether or not we should have named her Joy instead. We see the joy she brings, whether it be through something as little as a high five, a silly face, some babbles, or the way that she experiences this life with fresh wonder that only a baby can muster. And we, like Mary, treasure these moments in our hearts. At home, we talk about them again and again and again. We ponder them. We treasure experiences, moments, memories, and people. So treasuring something is a willful emotional response. Tim Keller writes, this expression has more to do with the emotions and the heart. It means to keep something alive or to savor. Mary doesn't just try to understand the word of God cognitively. She takes it all the way inside, as it were, to relish and experience it. The treasuring is not so much a technique as an attitude. Psalm 119, the longest psalm, is all about treasuring God's word. Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 111, your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. And then Keller goes on, treasuring means reminding myself of the preciousness, the value, the wonder, and the power of the particular truth that I am treasuring. It is to ask myself questions. How would my life be different if I really believed this from the bottom of my heart? How would it change my thinking, my feelings, and my actions? How would it change my relationships? How would it change my prayer life, my feelings, my attitude toward God? We'll end here, back where we started. Do you want joy? And do you have room for joy? There is a risk in making space for joy. We have to trust that we can actually be filled with the joy of the Lord. The same joy that the angels promised the shepherds. The same joy that Jesus held even in the midst of the brokenness that he stepped into when he first came down. But the promise to be received this Advent season is that joy is accessible now. It's not just future hope, future peace, and future joy. Otherwise, why would we follow Jesus? You know, why not just believe in him, believe the whole apprenticing under him to other super spiritual folks? You know, if following Jesus were only about going to heaven or waiting it out until Jesus finally comes back to make things new again, then there would be no reason to actively follow him and to be his disciple now. That would mean that joy is only reserved for later. But that's just not the promise of Scripture. That's just not the experience of Jesus' own disciples as they followed him, learned from him, but also laughed with him, ate and drank with him, and enjoyed life with him. 
That's not the experience of the apostles as they were imprisoned only to sing hymns and praises to God celebrating him while in prison. And that's not the experience of all the people throughout history who truly heard and then pursued, who shared and treasured Jesus. God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah saying, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Jesus himself states, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. And lastly, C.S. Lewis echoes, no soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. Joy has come, and joy is coming, but joy is also here. This is the mysterious tension that we live in on this side of eternity. So friends, tune in to the deep cry of your souls for true joy. Tune in to that deep cry of your souls for Jesus. Let us make room for joy by making room for Jesus. Hold space in your life for joy. Take time to catch that sunset. Take time to play with Phoebe. Take time to savor a good meal. Give God a day of rest, delight, and worship through Sabbath. Relish and savor scripture like fine food. Be with him as you are with a close friend in prayer. Acknowledge him with gratitude in your moments of fun as you take in and enjoy beauty. Allow yourself to wonder and play with the innocence and the abandon of a child. Hold space for joy. Hold space for Jesus and trust that he will actually come and fill it. Will you stand and pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that you are here and that you bring a joy that is accessible now, that cannot be taken away, that can be enjoyed in tension with the sorrow and the pain. We don't deny reality, but we also don't deny the reality of your joy. And so Lord, teach us, empower us to make space in our lives. Teach us and empower us and invite us to make space for you. And as we do, Holy Spirit, would you come and fill us? Fill us anew again. Make us people of your joy. Make us carriers and bringers of your joy. Lord, would this be our witness in the darkness? That we would all just be carriers of the light that you we ask this all in your name. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat, everyone.
At this time, as we usually do, we're just going to take a few quiet moments of reflection. Um, and so as we do, I'll lead us through a couple, um, a couple questions to think on. First is this, if you take stock of your life, if you take stock of your day-to-day routines and rhythms, what tends to crowd out any space for joy? What things crowd out any room for joy to enter into? Next, how can you take steps to make space for joy? How can you take steps to make space for joy? Maybe for you, it would be setting aside that time for Sabbath on a Saturday or a Sunday. Or maybe it's something as pragmatic as creating a Google Calendar so you can structure days and find spaces and gaps for rest, for play, for delight. Maybe it means going to bed a little bit earlier so that you don't sleep through every beautiful moment that the next day might bring. Maybe it might just mean putting your phone away. How can you make space for joy? And then lastly, how might Jesus be inviting you to make space for him? This Advent season, this Christmas and beyond, how might Jesus be inviting you to make space in your life for him? I understand that we're really busy people Some of you just came out of finals week. If you really want to get into the nitty gritty of of strategies for making space for Jesus, please come talk to me, really. But how might Jesus be inviting you to, to make space for him? That might mean just taking a a five minute pause in the middle of your day, just to consider the promise of Advent. Jesus is here. That might mean 
after snoozing or, or, or turning off your alarm in the morning, you devote a minute to prayer or reading scripture. How can, how might Jesus be inviting you to make space for him? Continue to take this time to pray or just to sit and to breathe and rest. Um, and then we'll return to worship again together. Thank you.